0: so how is everybody again yeah still okay good 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 well that's good because i got a lot of problems with you people (laughs) i just wanted to start it off on the good note there got a lot of problems with you people and we're going to hash it out we've got two hours to hash this out and now um i'm excited you guys are here um like i told you guys last week we do in fact have an elite special guest speaker who's it's only the second time in the last year to preach here so um be ready to be blown away by this so i mean i don't want to speak too highly of myself but pretty legit so i don't know if you guys does everybody here read the around the hill i don't i read it when it first comes out and then i forget everything that's in it so I mean, that's me, but did you see the sermon title this morning? It's, I'll just tell you, it's I Hate Love. We're going to talk about why I hate love this morning, right? So just get ready. Um, I tried to put something really controversial sounding to get as many people here as possible, and it didn't work, so I won't try that again. Um, <laughs> that was an epic failure on my part. So... Now, it turns out that the word love, honestly, is one of the most overused and useless words in the English language, right? Um, The idea or the sentiment behind love when we say, hey, I love you or whatever, is usually pretty good. And the feeling behind it's usually pretty good. But the word itself, not so good. Like, here's some examples just for my own life. I love cinnamon crunch bagels from Panera Bread. And I love, I think we all know this, I love Diet Coke. Like if Stephanie said, it's me or the Diet Coke, I'd have to take a couple of weeks to think about it. Like, I am that attached to this. Um, I cannot wait to get to heaven and see the rivers of Diet Coke flowing through the city. That is good, you guys. That is so good. Um, I love Star Wars, uh, The Lord of the Rings, Indiana Jones movies. I love playing video games. I love Stephanie. I love Elliot and Emerson. I love my mom and brothers. I love Jesus. Like, do you see what I mean? Like, How do we have that one word to describe all of those things? Is that not the... To me that's dumb and it's lazy like you know what we'll just like in eng or in england in america we're just lazy like oh think of all the calories we'd have to waste using a, having to think of the right word every time let's just give it one word and call it love and and we'll be good with that so yeah so like like you can see i don't know how well you guys can see that or not but i'm kind of beginning to think that the greeks had it right they had eight different words for the word love Like, I wouldn't use the same word I shouldn't use the same word for how much I love Stephanie and how much I love Diet Coke, right? Like, I don't dream of the one day that I get to give my life wholly and devoted to this Diet Coke. Like, I didn't do that. (laughs) But with Stephanie, I did, right? And I prayed for the wife that God would bring me, but I didn't pray for the right diet soda to God, for God to place in my life right and so these words are this one word is so crazy so yeah we've got these words up here and we've got eros which is erotic love and I'm you know we've got kind of broadened definitions of those philia which is affectionate love or brotherly love right which cracks me up about the city of Philadelphia like I think we all know rumors and stories of the fans from the city of brotherly love not a lot of love coming from the batteries that they throw at people, right? Um, Ludus, which is playful love, which that's kind of like young newlyweds that think everything the other person does is so great, and they can't wait to tell everyone how awesome they brush their teeth in the morning and how cute it is when the toothpaste runs just a little bit down, and they look so just cute, so darn cute when they do that. And I just love that stuff, I love, those little tiny cold feet curled up in the middle of my back at night. You know, like, you know, that's that's ludus. That's the, the young love. Then we have pragma, which is for us old, and I don't mean I'm old, but us old married people that are like, yeah, I mean, sh- yeah, she does get toothpaste all over herself in the morning when she brushes her teeth. It's pretty gross, but I love her anyways. We've gotten past that part, you know. Um, they're older and, and they're not they don't think everything necessarily that the other person does is the cutest thing ever done, right? Because they've matured past that part. Their love is a deeper, more intimate love. Right? And then we have agape which is selfless love and I don't, I'm not even going to try and pronounce this um, which is self love which looks worse than it is or sounds worse than it is. It's kind of like I'm comfortable with who I am. Like I don't rely on what you think of me to make me feel good about who i am you know god made me this way and i love the way god made me and so it's kind of a kind of a confidence about who you are it's not that you're relying on someone else that's kind of what that means and then we've got storage storage um since we're talking about the the stupidity of people that speak english i'll just say storage um because i'm sure that's not how it's pronounced but that's how it looks in english storage um and that's familiar love, and that would be like love like between um, brother and sister, or mother and child, or father and child. Like, like I, I love Elliot and Emerson, and right now, Elliot's about to experience love, because he's missing out on this sermon. Um, um, but I love them differently than I love Stephanie, or I love them differently than I love you guys, you know, they're and i'm more familiar with them than i am with you and so the love i have for them is a little bit different love and then we've got mania which is like i love you so much i would rather stab you with this knife and watch you bleed out than let someone else love you as much as i do right (laughs) like that's mania like ha 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 i love that guy um right and that's that's mania so it's this obsessive love and unfortunately there isn't one i don't know if you noticed There's not one for food or Diet Coke up there. Dang it. But I kind of like this better than just, I love Diet Coke, and I love you, Stephanie, and I love this church, and I love Jesus, right? That word doesn't mean the same in every instance, and it shouldn't. So this morning, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about God's love toward us, our love towards Him, and in return, our love towards each other. Right, so our passage this morning is in John chapter 13, um, it's verse 31 to 35, our main ones, and we're going to peek a little bit at 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, right? um, and we're going to see if, if Jesus can change our minds maybe a little bit about why I hate love. Um, so if you guys are there, yes, John chapter 13, verse 31 to 35. When He had left, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. Sorry, let me read that right. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, then God will also glorify Him in Himself, and will glorify Him at once. Children, I am with you a little while longer. You will look for Me, just as I told the Jews, So now I tell you, where I am going, you cannot come. So I give you a new command. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let's pray real quick and then we'll kind of dig into this. Uh, Thank you so much for your your beautiful word, God. And we just ask right now that, that you move me out of the way and remove all our preconceived thoughts and notions about what your love is and what love is, God, and, and just begin to to pour into us, God, what your love looks like, what your, your unending, never-ceasing love looks like, God. Help us to just maybe get a glimpse of that, God, in a different way that, that we've really thought about this morning. God, we thank you for the love that you do pour out on us, God. We just ask all these things in your most awesome name. Amen. All right, so this must be something important. Right? That Jesus said because he commanded us. That's what it says. A new command I give you, or I give you a new command. Love one another. He didn't say, hey guys, here's a good idea. You should love each other or something. You know, if you feel like it today, you should maybe love your neighbor or whatever. No, he commanded it. He he says, this is a new command. So we should take this seriously. Jesus commanded me, commanded disciples, we're to love one another, right? So we should take it seriously, maybe try and figure out exactly what that means to love one another just as he loved us. Why is this so important to communicate? Does anyone know what's going on in this passage? Does anybody know, like, context, what's happening here when Jesus gives this command? Anybody? This is the response time. Anyone? Bueller, Bueller. Bueller. Jesse, hit me. He does predict his betrayal, right? We're at the Last Supper, right? This is the last time Jesus is going to get to eat with his disciples, right? These are some of the last words he's going to speak to his disciples, to his friends. Like, a lot of times we use the word Jesus' disciples and we don't think about, hey, they were with him every day for three years, but pretty much all day long. They ate, slept together, they joked, I'm sure. Um, they, they did everything together. So they're not just his disciples. These guys are his friends. And three of them are super tight with him, right? And so this is the last time, and they don't necessarily know that, but he knows it. And so this is the last time he gets to, to hang out with these guys. These are the guys that Jesus was mentoring and the ones that would pick up his mission and spread it around the world. Like, literally, this room where these guys are having their last meal together, these guys are going to take this and spread it around the world. We wouldn't be able to worship here today if it wasn't for the guys in this room with Jesus. So, yes, they were also his friends. And I bet when they were older in life and later in life, they would recount these, the ones that made it to late in life. You know, most of them (laughs) didn't make it to late in life. Um, But I bet... After this point, they would recount this and replay this in their minds, especially knowing what is getting ready to happen in the next few hours. You know, when they get beyond this point and now they're on mission for Jesus and they're like, man, okay, he gave us a new command and they're replaying this, this dinner. This, you know, dinner time is an intimate time. I don't invite a lot of people you know, I don't invite complete strangers over for dinner. It's usually friends and family, right? So it's an int- dinners an intimate time and Jesus is sharing this last meal with these guys and they're going to remember this, I'm sure. So what was the last supper? Does anybody know that? Was it just like the last time they ate dinner together? Jesse, hit me, man. You guys Jesse is on it this morning. Jesse, what Yeah, it's Passover feast, right? Wasn't, it wasn't just like a meal they happened to be eat. Are you reading the little subtitle things at the top of the Bible? Okay. Did you skip backwards and read what's going on, Jesse? Okay. 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 <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, good. Yeah, so this is the Passover, part of the Passover meal, the Passover festival. This was our Passover feast which was a pretty big deal in the life of the Hebrews. It was a week-long party that they would celebrate something that happened 2,000-ish years ago. I don't know the exact number, and we're not going to test you on it, but it's around 2,000 years before this happened. And they were celebrating the time when God led His people, the Hebrews, out of Egypt. You guys know this story, right? So there they were all the plagues and all the weird raining frogs and locusts that ate everything and all the water turned to blood, right? And then there was this last plague that God sent, and it was the angel of death, right? And this was in response to what Pharaoh had done before this point, right? He had issued all the Hebrew boys, baby boys, kill them. Uh, they're getting too big. We don't want them to wipe us out. So we just need to kill the baby boys. So... They, get to, they go through all these things and get Pharaoh's like, okay, you guys can go. You know, the plagues happen. You guys can go. Then he changes his mind. No, never mind. You guys can go. Never mind. So finally God's like, alright, th- this is it. It's the last one, Moses. I'm going to send this angel of death to come through and kill the firstborn of everything in Egypt. And if we've seen like all the cute movies or whatever, I think we have a distorted view of what that is. Most of us think it's just kind of like the opposite of what Pharaoh did, right? Like The angel of death came through and killed all the Egyptian baby boys. No, it was the firstborn of everything. That means adults, cows, sheep, kids, men, women. Firstborn of everything was being killed by this angel of death. Unless, and God made a provision for this, unless you had killed a lamb, put the blood of the lamb over your doorpost at your house... When the angel of death comes through, he sees this blood, and he's going to pass over your house. This blood was your salvation from death that night. And so that's what they're celebrating. And they celebrated this event every year after that, and they still celebrate it to this day. Passover is still a holiday. I don't know too many more 4,000-year-old holidays that we celebrate. but So this is a big deal. So during the Passover... Passover feast during Jesus' day, this festival, this celebration, the population in Jerusalem would swell to like six times its normal population. And not Israel, like Jerusalem, like just the little city of Jerusalem. It's not a big place. You can Google Earth it now and look at where old Jerusalem is. It's not huge. And it would swell like six times its population. It would go from about twenty to 30,000 to hundred and fifty to 180,000 just for this one week. And it would be family and friends. Everybody from out of town is coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And they'd be packed into their families' houses. Or they'd have campsites set up on the mountain or on, uh, on the outside of town. And just wherever they could put a place. Um, think of uh, the Quidditch World Cup in harry and the potters anybody harry and the potters fans yeah the quidditch world cup like it's crazy um, how many people are packed around that do you are there a lot of pastors that reference harry and the potters no maybe i should pick something else but it's just crazy the amount of people that are in jerusalem so now with this in mind we need to remember what had happened just a few days before this last supper happens does anybody remember what happens before Jesus comes in and does his celebration, there's a triumphal entry, right? We always celebrate that at Easter time. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem and the population is swelled to this enormous amount of people, and they're all welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem as a king. So we have to keep that in mind too. this isn't just a you know what, guys, let's go upstairs and have dinner tonight, and we'll just talk about some stuff. Now, this was like an event. This was different than Passover's before this, and it would be different than Passover's after this because Jesus is coming into town, and this large amount of people is now like, you're the next king, Jesus. Come on in, and there's a party going on. And so we have to keep that in mind, too. This isn't just a regular old Passover meal. And so now we jump back to our story. Here's Jesus having this Passover meal with his closest friends who had just witnessed him coming into Jerusalem like a king. Jerusalem's ready for this guy to be their new king. So can you imagine the excitement and the eagerness that that these disciples must have felt, right? This would have been the perfect time for him to announce Guess what, guys? I'm the Messiah. I'm the king that's going to get stuff taken care of. I'm going to do some stuff. And so the entire city was ready to follow him. And these guys' his disciples, surely, you know, they're his closest friends. They're the ones that have been helping him get this thing started, right? They're going to get some pretty sweet positions in his new administration. That sounds really lame. But there may be a secretary of the treasury in this group. Right. Another lame sounding title. But maybe we'll just say generals in the army. That sounds cooler. But the anticipation for them this is probably killing them. They're like, ah, this is it, Jesus. We're going to do this thing. So now knowing all that, now we need a little more context. Right. Because it's not just that. It's not that Jesus comes in and everybody's excited about him being king. If that was it, they'd just, hey, Jesus, our king, let's take care of stuff. No. Israel was part of Rome at this time, right? And Rome is this expanding empire during this time. It's not too much later than when Julius Caesar was alive. They're like at their height. You know, they're they're doing some stuff, right? And so it was growing at this pretty at a pretty good rate. And a lot of territories that they're taking even wanted to be Roman a lot of times because it meant stability. It wasn't. It was a different situation, and and it also meant hey, we don't have to worry about Rome attacking us anymore. We'll just be Romans, right? And so it gave them the sense of stability. So Rome, for the most part, would just bring these territories, these nations, these tribes, whatever. They'd bring them into their empire and kind of fold them in and let them live kind of the way they lived before, only they'd send a Roman governor and soldiers to that area. They're going to make sure they do things the way Rome's supposed to do things. So they'd send them in to oversee the area. So a lot of the time it was kind of just a live and let live for Rome. As long as you paid your taxes and if we went to war make sure you send your soldiers to come help us fight in the war. Uh, Now it's a little more complicated than all of that but that's a very broad general kind of what's going on in this time with Rome. And so for everyone except Israel this is a pretty good deal. Israel was a bit of a thorn in the side of Rome. And I don't mean like a bit like a giant nail on their side, because Israel was not a big place, but it was just annoying. It was like having one, like a little pebble in your shoe. You can still walk, but it stinks, right? And it's just something, I can keep walking, but I'm just going to stop and get this dumb rock out. Like, that's kind of the way Israel was for Rome, right? They had this crazy idea that they only answered to God's authority. Like, if you're Roman, that's how they're like. I don't know what the deal is with these Israelites. They think they only answer to God. You know, that's the way they probably looked at it. But for Israel, it's like, no, no, no. We don't answer to you, Rome. We answer to God. Only they didn't necessarily always practice what they preached, right? Or else they wouldn't be in this situation with Rome that they're in. They wouldn't be under someone else's rule and authority. Hang on, guys. Gotta taste some of the sweet nectar again. They wouldn't be in this situation if they actually lived like they only answered to God. They'd be their own thing. God had set up, hey, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. And this is how it's going to happen, only the Israelites weren't great at being his people. He turns out he's pretty good at being their God, but they weren't so great at being his people all the time. So now Rome, during this time... I'm a nerd. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I don't know if you guys noticed. I haven't mentioned them yet. Normally, I lead my sermons with a podcast, but I listen to this History of Rome podcast. If you're a nerd, it is awesome. If you're not a nerd, it's pretty boring. And turns out I'm a nerd, so I listen to all of it. Uh, But there there are a lot of, like, rebellions and stuff that Rome put down. Hey, this guy's rich. He's going to buy himself an army, and he's going to make a move to be the new... Caesar and all this stuff. And so Rome was a little paranoid about things like that, about revolts and overthrows. So whoever was Caesar, whoever was the governor of that province or territory, they they put those things down quickly and violently with very few exceptions. Um, And so there were these group of people in Israel at the time called the Zealots. Anybody know who the Zealots are? Raise your hand if you're Zealots. Okay, apparently not. Um, So but I'll tell you who they were. So there were these people called the Zealots, and they kind of lived out in the desertish area, and what they would do, they'd get a group of people, they'd wait, you know, one guy would be like, yeah, I hate Rome, and he'd be a dude that loves, he's likes to fight guy, and he would go get as many people that also like to fight, and he'd be like, all right, let's go wreak some havoc in Israel, to try and let Rome know how much we hate them, and they'd go in, and they'd raid stuff. I kind of picture it like a Robin Hood situation, only a lot less nice because they didn't like Rome at all. They were pretty violent towards them. And so there were these guys out in the desert committing kind of these acts of terrorism against Rome. They'd send these parties into Israel and run back to the desert and hide. And they do this over and over again. In fact, Barabbas, everybody know Barabbas? He's the guy that they let that got set free in Jesus' place during Jesus' trial. He was one of these zealots, and he was in jail for killing someone during one of these riots, right? So he's one of these guys. So These, and the, what, these guys were just an annoying... Not only was Israel an annoying thorn in the side of Rome, these guys were like the sharp, pointy part of the thorn, right? They, they were just... Uh, Rome probably did one of these every time they heard about the, the zealots. Right, so he's in jail for killing someone. So where are you going with this, Jason? What's, who cares? This is a, Isn't this a good story, you guys? Huh? Everybody knew they were coming for a little history lesson today, right? And I think we'll end it here. Dear Father, we, you know. um, don't worry, we've got some word study coming here in a little bit too. Um, well, stick with me because we're in there. So Roman authorities are a bit on a heightened alert right now. Israel has just its population has swelled to this huge amount there's these zealots doing their thing they're running and doing stuff and running back out to the desert and now here comes jesus who's being hailed as the new king of israel right and don't think the zealots aren't taking advantage of this swell in the population because it's a lot easier to hide among 180,000 people than it is 20 or 30,000 people, right? So they'd come in and do their thing. You have to remember, something happened during this time or else Barabbas wouldn't have been in jail. So they're taking advantage of this and here comes Jesus and these people are like, he's our new king. So from the eyes of Rome, what does this look like? This looks like a pretty huge rebellion getting ready to start, right? And so Jesus was this guy that's coming to, to take this. And I don't know how much the, the leaders of Rome, you know, back in capital city there, um, knew about Jesus, but Israel's expecting this long-awaited Messiah, right, that's going to come from the line of David, he's going to be a king like David, and he's going to rule, and there's not going to be any more occupying powers in Israel, they're going to take care of things. And it's funny, when you, when you hear all the prophecies um, about Jesus, you know, a lot of times they're He's going to come from the line of David. They're looking for the next king who is like David. It's funny, like, you don't ever, you don't read too many of them. that are like, he's going to come from the line of Solomon, right? Like, we have basically three pretty decent kings at the beginning, Saul, David, and Saul wasn't great, but stay with me. Saul, David, and Solomon, and everybody talks about David. Now, they don't, like, yeah, he's going to be just like Solomon, no, he's gonna be like David. Solomon was a king during peace, but they wanted someone like David, and David was a king during a time of war. And he conquered people, and he fought, and he would—he was like William Wallace. Is that a dated reference? Has anybody here seen Braveheart besides me? Brian. Brian, Brian's probably got it memorized. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's like William Wallace. He like. He paints his face blue and tells out their, tells everybody there, may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom. And then they run and do their thing. Like that's King David, right? That's what they, that's what the Israelites want, because they want a violent overthrow and get push everybody out of Israel forever, right? Um, David's gonna, he's gonna clear out all these uncircumcised Philistines and all these unredeemed liars. Right, And he's going to set up this eternal kingdom in Israel. And that's what they're looking for. So there is some friction building up here between Israel and Rome. right? At least from Rome's perspective. And I'm sure from Israel's perspective. I'm sure they're like, you guys, this is it. This is coming. Israel's angry at, at Rome. Rome's annoyed by Israel. And here's Jesus and these 12 guys at this Passover meal kind of in the middle of this and these guys are probably like hey we're we're ready for a plan Jesus we're we're ready to fight we're ready to do this thing and even though they lived with Jesus they still remember a few hours later they're like wait this King David type guy can't get arre- can't get arrested and go to jail and stand on trial right and they all abandon him Except for Peter, kind of. He didn't really do much, but sneak in the bushes and follow him to the trial and then watch it and tell people he doesn't know who Jesus is, right? Because, ah, something, this isn't how a Messiah comes and takes power, right? And so they're ready for this fight and they're ready for this plan of action. They're, this is the time that the Messiah is coming and we're going to wipe out Rome, at least wipe them out of, of Israel. And so they're with the one that they believe is finally going to lead them to do this. So they come to this meal, and Jesus, this new king, starts off with a bang. He takes off his clothes and washes their feet. Is that, like, if you're one of these disciples, like, hey, wait, no, 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 keep, keep those on, Jesus. You're the king. <laughs> like, and Peter even says, like, you can't wash my feet. I, I should be washing your feet, right? And we get into this discussion between Peter and Jesus, Peter's like, no, 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 I, I need to wash your feet. And Peter's like, well, then wash my whole body, right? And so he starts off by washing their feet. And then he calls out Judas, one of the 12. And he's like, hey, basically tells him he's going to betray him and go ahead and do what you're going to do, right? Instead of stopping this guy who could possibly ruin his, the start of his kingdom, this guy that's sold him out to the Romans... Jesus is like, just go do what you're going to do there, Judas, so we can get the ball rolling, right? He doesn't stop him. And so this whole Passover meal, this launch of Jesus' campaign is kind of starting out weird, right? And so Judas leaves, and that's where we come to our passage. That's what it means when it says, when he had left, they're talking about Judas. Because Jesus is like, hey, Judas, go do what you got to do. We've got some business to take care of here. So he leaves. He leaves. And they start, they, they get into the singing, and, and Jesus says, Now the Son of Man can be revealed or can be glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, then God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him at once. Yes, pretty sure you know what that means, right? A lot of the word glorified in that sentence. Um, like, just imagine. A description of something and using the word green for every. You no, know, the grass was green, and so because it was green, it was a little greener than some greens, and and the green is going to make the other things green, right? <laughs> like that's kind of how I view this when I read this this little passage. And also, I also wonder, like, is this how the conversation started? Was there any like chit chat and idle banter back and forth before this, or did they just sit down and Jesus go? now the son of man can be glorified and God can be glorified in him. Like, was it a weird, like, again, dumb and dumber, another dated reference when he's just in the limo with the girl at the beginning. And just, I got worms, right? Like, I, that's how I always picture this conversation starting. They just sit down. Now the son of man is glorified, right? And so everyone sits down and, and, and they're having this conversation at the table. And he's basically telling his disciples, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to go through this torture that's unlike any torture that history has known. It's one of the cruelest tortures in history. The, cro- like the word excruciating comes from, it means from the cross, right? So when we think of the worst pain ever, we say, oh gosh, it was excruciating. That means we're comparing it to being crucified on the cross, right? So it, it was a pretty serious deal, and he knows it's coming. They're still a little confused by this whole situation. But somehow through this, he and his father are finally going to be glorified fully. That's what he says. Now I can be glorified. I'm going to go through this thing and all the awesome stuff I've done, all the people I've healed, all the lives I've changed so far. that's, That's not even the coolest part, you guys. Now I can be glorified and now God can be glorified through me and in me. And God is going to glorify me through this situation. And then he kind of, then he calls them kids, right? Again, this is the pump me up speech they're looking for. Children, I'm with you a little while longer. You'll look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I tell you where I'm going. You cannot go. Is is this a put down? Like, see, like, all right, listen here, kiddies. Um, no, I don't think that's how he's talking to them. In fact, if you do any study at all, he's kind of talking to them kind of like a teacher talks to a student. So he's not like. Hey, listen here, little kids. Hey, little fella, here's the deal. He's not doing that. He's like, guys, here's the deal. Um, and he's talking to them affectionately and saying, hey, th- this is what's going to happen. But what is he talking about? Of course, they're, <laughs> they're coming with him, right? He's told them they can't go where he's going. He, they've, been, they've gone with him everywhere he's gone for the last three years. Of course, they're coming with him. He's crazy. We're his boys, we're going with them. This, this is it. Jesus, you're, you're not keeping us from being a part of this, right? Especially Peter, think about Peter. He doesn't back down from fights. like Peter is likes to fight guy in this group, right? And he may have even been a zealot before Jesus brought him into his group of disciples, right? And Peter loves a good fight and he's ready to start a war, right? He's I mean, we see that later in the garden of Gethsemane he just cuts the dude's ear off, which by the way is my favorite story in the entire Bible. Can you imagine what that looked like when Peter's cuts a guy's ear off and he's like, up, 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 I got it. And just bends down and like, Oh, there you go, fella. There's your ear back. Like, how did that look? Like, was it like cartoonish? Like he put it on there and everything kind of went back together. But anyways, that's a sidetrack. That's bonus content for the end of the CD. Um, Peter's chomping at the bit to start this revelation and then he gives it his first orders. He finally gives this new commandment. The king is he's going to tell us how this kingdom's going to go. Here are your first orders. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also love one another. By this everyone will know that you are really my followers, you're really my disciples. They'll know this By the love you show one another. What? They're not kicking Rome out of Israel by loving them to death, right? (laughs) Hey, cool sword, buddy. Bring it in. Give me a hug. Now, will you please leave? That's not how this is going down, right? We need to remember that Jesus wasn't speaking to us during this time. It's awesome that God's word applies to us now, but he wasn't talking to us. He was talking to these guys. In this situation, he wasn't talking to people who have the benefit of hindsight that can look back and see how this this mission that Jesus had really was supposed to work. He's talking to people who are in the middle of this. They're being um, I can't think of the right word, but they're, they're desperate for an overthrow of this this government, this oppressive government that has all these rules that aren't God's rules and laws. He's talking to them, and they want action. They're ready for it, and they believe now is the time. And after all, Jesus was the guy who just came in like a king. And that is what's so beautiful and so controversial and so life-changing about meeting Jesus, is yes, he does want a revolution. He wants an overthrow, but he doesn't want it the way you might want it or the way I might want it. Jesus knows how it goes, right? Something is broken and needs to be fixed. And the thing that's broken is not the government that's ruling us now. The thing that's broken is inside of you and it's inside of me. Something at our core needs to be fixed. Our hearts need to be fixed. And until that problem is taken care of or taken care of, No amount of war or debate on Facebook or anger or yelling at people how right you are and how wrong they are. Well, I'm just going to close myself off from everything. That's not going to change anything. Jesus knows what's at the core of the problem. He knows what the issue is. And it's not any of that. It's not fighting and anger and killing. It's love. So, Bree, can you put up that next slide? Sorry. Sorry. that is what is wrong. That is what the problem is. And so you see the Greek word that Jesus uses here. You know, we had all these Greek words, but the Greek word written down here, and Jesus didn't speak Greek, by the way, spoke Aramaic. So I don't have the actual Aramaic word. It turns out it's hard to find things in Aramaic. And it's also hard to read things in Aramaic. So, um, but the Greek word written down here is actually the word agapao, which is like the verb form of agape. Right, And I think, unfortunately, we want to use this word love more like a version of eros. I know that sounds weird because we talked about how like eros is this erotic love. But um, eros, actually, it's kind of more motivated by desire or ecstasy or wanting to feel good. That's kind of what eros is. And so I think, unfortunately, a lot of times when we see, oh, Jesus says to love one another, love people like I love them. Right, And so we kind of throw this weird like, oh, you guys, everything's so great. You should come here. You should meet Jesus because it feels so good to meet Jesus. And we probably don't talk like that. But that's kind of the, the idea we like to convey a lot of times when we think of love. We're like, yes, I went to this thing and God moved and I felt so good. It felt so good to be part of that thing. And that's kind of what we a lot of times try and and preach and teach a lot of times is this more this This lovey-dovey, touchy-feely version of love, and that's not at all what Jesus is talking about. Unfortunately, the motive of that kind of love is all about me. God, God, I'm going to come to church today, but we better sing certain songs a certain way, or I'm not going to feel great about it. Right? Or I'll go help that guy, but I'm helping him because you you guys have no idea how good it feels for you to help someone else. How good you feel to help someone else. Or man, when we sing that, that song the right way, oh, it's like you just melt in your seat. It feels so awesome. You could feel God's presence, right? And a lot of times that's unfortunately what we want. We want an attractive experience with God that makes us feel good, right? Jesus, however, wants agape, And you can see up here the quotes I have. It exhibits itself in the uncompromising care of others for their sake, right? That is what Jesus commands. And not only does he want it, like I said, he commands it. A new command, a new command I give you is to love one another, just as I have loved you, to agape one another, as I have agape you. That sounds dumb going from Greek to English, but... That's what he's saying. Agape doesn't care how you feel or what you get out of this experience. Agape is hard because it means you have to get you out of the way and give to someone else. And you may not agree with that person or even like that person, but agape is not about you and how you feel about that person. Agape is about that person, regardless of who they are, what they look like, where they come from. This is the kind of love God showed us when He came to us. Man, how often do we sin and mess up and just fly in the face of everything that God is, but yet God still, the Bible says, while we were still His enemies, He came. How many times do we do that with the people we disagree with? When we read a post on Facebook or Twitter or Instamat or whatever, We're like, dadgummit, I'm going to show this guy how he's wrong, and I'm going to let him know what the Bible says. And a lot of times we misquote things. And unfortunately, even if we quote them wrong, we are angry at that person. We don't love that person. We don't want them to know how God feels about them. We're just angry at that person because they're saying something different than what we believe. Right? Agape is not about you. It's about them. It's the kind of love God showed us. There's an author... I have one of his quotes up there. His name is Skip Moen. I'm just going to read this. He puts it this way. Eros is man's impulse to be lifted up to God. And agape is God's decision to reach down to man. While eros seeks relationships in order to fulfill its own desires for ecstasy, agape exhibits itself in the uncompromising care of others for their sake. Agape is love motivated by choice. And he goes on to say, when Yeshua, which is Jesus' name, you guys ever wonder about Jesus Christ, too? Like, we say, like, Mary and Joseph's last name weren't Christ. They weren't like Mr. and Mrs. Christ, right? Did you guys know that? Like Christ just means king. So, really, when you say Jesus Christ, you're saying King Jesus. So, I don't don't know why that just popped into my head, but it did. So, it doesn't matter. You're my audience. You have to hear what I have to say. Um, he He goes on to say, when Yeshua gave this new commandment, he directed his followers toward deliberate choices to care for each other. He did not ask them to find euphoria in their decisions. He did not require them to experience a thrilling victory or spiritual delight. He told them to demonstrate disinterested concern. Disinterested because it did not depend on reciprocity or being given back and concern because it reflected the deliberate will and action of the Father. God doesn't want us to look at people and say, Eh, that guy smells funny. Maybe I'll tell him about Jesus after he cleans up a little bit. Or, man, that guy's a liberal. And maybe I'll tell him about Jesus once he comes over to the right side of the aisle. Or, I guess I better do it this way. That guy is a conservative. Maybe I'll tell him about Jesus when he comes a little more over to the left side of the aisle, right? And that is not what agape is. Agape is that guy needs to know the love of Jesus. And whether he hates me or I hate him, I'm going to show him love. I'm going to deliberately go out of my way to love on that guy. I'm going to show concern for him. When he's hurting, I'm going to help him. when he's, or I'm going to comfort him. When he needs help, I will be there. Because Jesus loves that guy, just like Jesus loved me when I was a sinner, while I was still an enemy of God. And so this idea of agape kind of puts things in 1 Corinthians 13, kind of puts a new spin on that. And I know we, a lot of us know that we could, a lot of us almost quote it, because how many here had that read in their wedding? 1 Corinthians 13. Did we? Good good we did it right then uh, right but we've heard that at what nobody here had someone read 1 corinthians 13 three and or three and four basically at their wedding every every does anybody here know them? Okay. all right a lot of people have even people that aren't believers have that read at their wedding right but it puts a new spin on it. i'll read it's called the love chapter if you guys aren't familiar with it but every time the word love is used in this passage it's not eros It's not ludus. It's not any of those. It's agape. It doesn't matter how good you feel about marrying this person here. That's not what this passage is about. So let me read this. If I speak, and I'm just going to read the whole chapter. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, do not have agape, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions and I give over my whole body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. And it's not irritable and does not keep a record of wrongs, right? He's talking about agape. With touchy-feely love, someone can hurt our feelings. And man, that feeling of love can fade real quick, right? That is not agape. That is not what God is talking about, right? Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Agape never ends. Because if I look at you and I have that kind of concern that God had for me when he chased me, how, how could that ever end? If I'm looking at you through blank, a blank lens... And I'm like, God, no matter what, this guy can punch me in the face. Jesus even said that, to strike you on the right cheek, turn and give him your left. Or he may have said left and right. He doesn't want us to fight back at people who are angry. He wants us to love them. God wants us to love them no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter how much we disagree with them. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. Then I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. See, faith has an end. One day, we won't have to follow God by faith. One day, we will get to experience and see God face to face. And we won't have to, to rely on this unseen thing that's moving us. Hope has an end because now we hope for what God has for us when we pass from this life and go on to the next life. And we have a hope for what God has for us there. But love never ends because when we do that, we get to experience God's love without all of this in the way, without all my preconceived ideas and notions in the way. We get to experience that. And I can only imagine then how I will love the people around me when I get to experience God's love fully without my self messing it up. Those things all have an end, but not love. And so we've taken this passage kind of way out of context when we use it at weddings. Does it apply? Yes, I should love Stephanie that way. That's not the intent of this passage. And Jesus, Paul, or sorry, Paul, when he wrote this, didn't put down, okay, this is for all the weddings um, that we need to address what love is for all the weddings coming. No, he wants all of us to treat each other that way. And so we've taken this out of context. We're to love everyone that way, not just our spouse. There's a different kind of love I should have for my spouse. So then Jesus says, this is how those around us will know that we really follow Jesus, that we're really his disciples, is if we love one another. God wants us to fix what's wrong here. Here. And use that awareness to show love to others, that same kind of love that God showed us. He doesn't want us to stand on a mountaintop i.e. Facebook, Insta, Smack, whatever, and tell everyone how wrong they are, how messed up this world or our culture is. He doesn't want us to necessarily feel good about helping those around us. He wants us to love them whether it makes us feel good or not, whether we agree with them or not, whether we like them or not. We need to push aside everything that keeps us from showing God's sacrificial love towards each other we need to be selfless and sacrificial in our love even though it may hurt because it hurt Jesus a tad to show his love for us not just because he died on the cross he had to leave perfection he had to leave heaven and come to this messed up place to show love for us right it hurt him a tad And if we're truly following Jesus, we should love others to the point that it might hurt us and we might not feel good. And it may cost us something to love those people. So do I actually hate love? No, no, I just hate that dumb word, love. Um, I just think we need to consider, man, what path are we on? Where are we headed as individuals and as a culture? Are we looking for the next awesome experience with God at whatever conference we go to. Man, it felt good. Man, they preached the word and I felt great. I felt a little tingle sometimes when they preached. Man, it it was good. Or are we looking for every opportunity to make the deliberate choice to bless those around us? Maybe you're here and you've never experienced that sacrificial love, that unending God's selfless love towards us. If there's anyone that doesn't deserve to be loved it it's me um you know i i know you guys think i'm awesome right um but man i have screwed up royally over and over again in my life But man god showed that agape self-sacrificing never-ending love maybe maybe now's the time for you to think about man what does that really mean that god loved me what what did he do for me not only did he He'd die on a cross, and yes, he died on a cross, but man, he left eternity, he left perfection, he left heaven to come and die on that cross for me. And not only that, he beat death. The cross didn't win. He rose from the grave. Why? So that I could experience his love more fully. Man, I'm gonna be down front, and if you'd like to talk about that kind of love that Jesus showed, man, how do I get that? I would love to talk to you. It's it's not hard. All you have to say is, Man, Jesus, I'm sorry. The life I've led, I know I've messed up, and countless times I've messed up, and God loved me anyways. God, I'm going to give you my life. Now I'm going to start living to please you and to honor you rather than myself. I'll be down at front. Um, if you'd like to come or if you'd like to pray, this altar's open. If you need to do some business with God, God, thank you so much for your word. God, your love is more than we can fathom god more than we can comprehend thank you for pouring it out on us just in oceans full god you truly are a good god who loves beyond measure and beyond what we can fathom we thank you for that god just do your work now during this time of invitation we just lift you up now and we ask all these things in your name amen (laughs)